You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Episode 160 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. I'm Ilea Danner Grubbs, and with me today are Carla Ewart and Kim Feldman. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Before I begin, I do want to give a content warning up front for any listeners who might need it. Uh, we will be discussing sensitive topics like domestic abuse in our discussion of the Marshall Church, and so we just wanted to give everybody a warning if there were any listeners that needed to be aware of that. Um, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Kim, will you start us off? Sure. I am Kim Feldman, and I do teacher education in the Baltimore area at UMBC, and I live here with my two kids and my husband, who recently transitioned out of uh, full-time ministry and is now working part-time at a seminary. Uh, my name's Carla, and I was Eward, and currently I'm now Godwin, um, and that name change was a divorce, so... Um, oh, um, I apologize. <laughs> totally fine. I just... I, I didn't fix it for you, so no big deal. Um, but I'm Carla Godwin. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I am currently um, the, a project manager for the Graves Foundation, a family foundation that works for youth here in Minneapolis, and also um, the director of the Paris Foundation, um, which is a, an innovative housing, um, affordable housing community uh, that primarily serves uh, former foster youth. So those are my jobs. I um, have two kids. We live here in Minneapolis, and uh, yeah, it's cold and super snowy. We got lots of inches of snow. Oh, my kids would be very jealous of that. <laughs> we played um, outside all morning. It was great. So That's amazing. I'm Ilya Daner-Grebs. I live in Alabama where we have very little snow, although we might get some on Sunday, hopefully. Um, I live here with my husband and our two young children, and I used to be a classroom teacher, but now I homeschool full-time, and uh, I'm excited to get to talk to you guys about this podcast today. Um, before we dive into our discussion, let's get a little background on our experiences with Mars Hill, Mark Driscoll, um, and kind of the podcast in general, because it's, it's a lot. Um, I will start by just saying that I was in high school and college for a lot of this, um, and then like my, like early years of marriage. So I, I wasn't, I wasn't very much into Mark Driscoll, Mars Hill at all. Um, but the ideas that were there definitely permeated my life in a lot of ways. I feel like it was pretty pervasive in Christian culture, and I was very deep in Christian culture, evangelical Christian culture at that time. Um, but I didn't like him specifically. I never read his books or anything like that. Um, but I definitely knew people who did. I have a family member who actually traveled to Portland to live there because Blue Like Jazz recommended um, the – Mark the Cussing Pastor, who's Mark, they talk about him early in the podcast, about that whole situation early in the podcast. So I definitely had some kind of touchstones um, where he influenced my life in different ways, but uh, not directly. I do have a friend who's a therapist in Seattle who says they still regularly hear from and deal with what they call Marshall refugees. So that's interesting. It has been interesting to talk to them um, through listening to the podcast and kind of their reflections on what the podcast says versus what they're seeing in their daily life and therapy with these people. 
Um, so let's see, Carla, what about you? Yeah. So, um, I would say that I was, I was probably goodness during most of Driscoll's ministry, just like out of college and young adults, uh, for a lot of this, um, I have kind of a weird relationship with it in some ways because I have actually worked really closely with some of the people who are interviewed on the podcast, who were close to, Mark Driscoll during the emergent church days. I worked with Doug Paget for five years, who's interviewed, and um, and with Tony Jones a bit in that as well. Um, who are both That's really interesting. Yeah, so I actually have like a weird kind of um, close <laughs> relationship to at least the sort of roots of where Mark Driscoll's ministry started. I know that all of that diverged quite a bit at a certain point um, as Doug and others became more. Um, doctrinally and socially liberal, Mark kind of went the other direction and they talk about some of that. Um, but it, it, it is really interesting for me just in terms of having worked with people, <laughs> men who were part of that emergent church and finding that, uh, even as doctrines shifted, that some of the, um, sort of embodied and ingrained, um, hyper-masculine patriarchal responses did not shift. So that was my experience, um, in those spaces. Uh, but in terms of the podcast, I kept my friend, a lot of friends who I worked with in that sphere in the uh, post evangelical national work that I used to do, um, had already listened to it and, and were talking about it and kept saying, Carly, you got to listen, but lots of trigger warnings. <laughs> so I did finally listen and it definitely, I had my moments of real trigger. Um, but also I'm really grateful to have listened and, and also have a lot of thoughts on, you know, Christianity Today doing this podcast and um, mm-hmm. still having a, you know, uh, it's, it's, they're quite doctrinally aligned with Mark Driscoll, even if they're questioning some of these outcomes, I would say. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so yeah, I have lots of thoughts, uh, but I have some really weird closeness to some of the content uh, in, in chunks of my life. So. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm glad you're here to talk about that. Kim, what about you? Yeah. So, um, about a year after I got married, um, my husband and I started planting a church and we were kind of like Acts 21 adjacent. Like he uh, was very much influenced by Acts 21 and um, oh, the Acts 29, Acts 29. Yeah. yeah. The, the church planting movement. And so he definitely was um, influenced somewhat by some of Mark Driscoll's teachings around that and around church planting. And I remember like listening to Mark Driscoll podcasts at times when we were driving back and forth between Georgia and Baltimore and, um, you know, just thinking he was so funny and outlandish and some of the things that he was saying. And I, we did, um, purchase, um, real marriage and, uh, I want to say we did something at the church around it at some point, but it's like really fuzzy in my head because I also remember when kind of this stuff around 2015 started happening and the talk about plagiarism and about um, the weird book sale things and all that stuff. We we eventually got rid of the book because I asked my husband this morning, I was like, do we still have that book? I know we had it at some point. And he was like, oh, no, I got rid of it. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> there's definitely some influence in our own church planning experience. But my experience of listening to the podcast itself um, was very interesting because we were in the process of um, leaving our church, like of of Adam stepping down, which, which kind of necessitated our leaving, which was really difficult because of, you know, you lose your whole spiritual family, your community. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it was just, and I was just dealing with a lot of kind of processing 
what is church planning? What are the benefits of it? What are the downsides of it? Um, just asking a lot of questions about the church, about American church, about church planting. It was just all a very, very dramatic and difficult experience in the fall. And that's the context in which I was listening to this podcast. And it was weirdly helping me to process things. Um, and just some of my like kind of distorted understandings of ministry and church and how it was somewhat shaped by some of these ideas that came from Driscoll and his colleagues. So, um, so yeah, it was a very timely podcast for me. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. I think that the, the timing of it has been really important in its success um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, the deconstruction movement and everything I think has really helped to push that into the, the center of the conversation. That's really interesting. Um, so as we start, are we're specifically talking about um, the the parts of this podcast that dealt with the role and the theology around women in Mars Hill um, and, and Mark Driscoll's teaching about women. Um, and the episode five is the one that that really you know specifically centers around this, but it's throughout. You can there's several, and the last episode talks about it some more too. Um, but so let's start by talking about what did they teach about the role of women, the purpose of women, women's you know um, job, I guess, um, and and how is that maybe how is it different than other churches? Kim, you want to start us off with that? Sure. Um... I guess I want to situate it in there's some people talk about kind of a continuum of complementarianism from like hard complementarianism to soft complementarianism. And I would definitely say that this is hard complementarianism. Um, I think in all cases, a complementarian perspective is that women and men are distinct but equal and also that they have different roles, um, particularly in the church. I think there are soft complementarians that just strictly say situate that in the church um, and they don't apply it to culture in general or to workplaces or government. It's just in the church. Um, and then hard complementarians um, would say that it applies in the home and in society and in workplaces. Um, they also they, they um, enact it differently in the church. Um, so my experience, uh, we, we were a Southern Baptist church and we were um, complementarian in our stance, um, but we really emphasize the importance of female voice and female leadership and that, you know, God created men and women and together we image God and we need to have the voices of women at the table in as many ways as possible. So we had we actually had all women for our deacons, not the whole time, but most recently it was um, the deacons were all women. We had women in leading music leading prayer, leading um, different things on Sunday mornings um, and on the leadership team, but only men could be elders and preach on Sunday mornings. And so I would say that that's kind of on the very soft end of complementarianism and it didn't apply beyond the church setting, except for there was discussion in our church about like male headship in the home. Um, but what Mark Driscoll and what Mars Hill was teaching, and I think we have to talk about the way they framed men just as much as the way they framed women to fully understand it. Mm -hmm. Because it's true. Yeah, um, I would 
the way they were teaching it was, first of all, there was male leadership in the church, clearly, but there was also, and there was also male headship in the home, but they, they really emphasized kind of man as like militant protector of the family and of the church and man as provider. Um, and it was almost a violent <laughs> conception of masculinity um, as an answer to a, like this perceived crisis of masculinity in the church and in society. Um, so they were calling men to do better and have sacrificial Christ life love for their wives, which is a good thing. Like some of the, you know, quotes that they used of his sermons and things, you were like, oh, yeah, that's that's pretty consistent. You know, like you need to have a Christ life, self-sacrificial love for your wife. Um but it really did it in a way that kind of delimited the possibilities for women in the community. The women were viewed as objects that needed to be protected, provided for, and used for sexual gratification of their husbands. Um, the women were primarily to focus on the home. They were not to, um, to seek out jobs. They were to have babies and care for children and meet their husband's needs and desires. And to the point where there were people who talked about being discouraged from even going to college. Um, and the women um, were definitely seen as sexual objects to save their husbands from sexual sin and meet their desires. And there was just this kind of excessive focus on sex. It wasn't just sex positive, but like <laughs> um, it kind of went beyond that. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how I would separate uh, what they were teaching from what other complementarians might be teaching. You know, I didn't hear them talk about this in the podcast so much, but I keep thinking, you know, Driscoll started this ministry with a couple other people, but they started it in 1996, right? And he was very young when he started it in his 20s. And, like, this is a direct result of purity culture, right? Like, we, grew, I grew up in the 80s and 90s and, you know, the, the purity culture and all that stuff. And, like, this is what purity culture grows up to be in a lot of ways, right? Like this idea of um, saving sex for marriage to the extreme of you get the purity balls and the, you know, shaming women and, and all that. And then like those those young men who grew up in that culture, now they're pastors and, and they, they take this and they just, you know, turn it up to 11 and it becomes this entire sex-obsessed culture that's still very much like purity culture, but now it's like, okay, but now you have to flip the switch and you're on the other side of marriage, so now it's not, you know, don't do anything, don't show your ankles, you know, that kind of extreme, not that, but you know, that's an exaggeration, but but now it's it's the exact opposite of now you can have everything you want, you should, you deserve everything that you, a man, want you know, from your wife and she really doesn't have a choice. She needs to give it to you or she's in sin. Like it's, it seems to me like tying this together with the purity culture of the nineties is, is important to highlight. Yeah. I think it's a really good point that it is an extension and like an exaggerate that it's a, an at 11 of purity culture. Yeah. Like a caricature of it. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, you couldn't have gotten to this level of, um, it, it, I don't know. It, it really does come to a point of abuse. There's a, a terrible story in the in the podcast of, you know, Mark telling in a sermon or telling a woman specifically that she was supposed to give her husband oral sex and and describes that um, uh, the progression of that conversation with the woman and, and her relationship with her husband. And it's incredibly disturbing. Um, and it's not so it is very much as you're saying, it's. Um, you know, not just that sex is fine inside of marriage, but that women owe 
men sexual satisfaction and, and that if they don't give that to men, that men have the right to be angry. They have the right to cheat. They have the right to, you know, all these things, because if their wife isn't satisfying them, she's clearly not doing her part, you know. Um, so it does not only, you know, make the woman a sexual object for the man, but it makes the responsibility. It, it puts responsibility on her for his desire for managing his desire, for trying to make sure that, you know, the marriage stays together. So, um, yeah, there's like this completely dissonant dichotomy of this culture where men are held up as uniquely created to lead and be in control. They should always by default be in control, but also they have no control. They have no self, they have no capacity for self-control and no capacity for controlling their lust. So they have to be protected by women and, and satiated by women at all times so that they don't lose control. Like it's, it's this really weird kind of double talk that it's not just at Mars Hill that this happens, but I feel like it is just so crystal clear at, at Mars Hill. And this is just kind of, like I said, a caricature of this extreme um, ideology that really like lionizes men and at the same time infantilizes them, you know? And, and I feel like that does impact men in a lot of ways to be told like you are uniquely qualified to always be a leader. And also you have no self-control. You cannot be expected. You are not responsible for what you do if you don't get your way. Like that's well, so damaging. It is, and it does turn leadership violent, right? That is, that is the if you are expected yeah. to lead and you're, you know, um, not able to control, the, you, you know, you can't regulate this one part of yourself. Your option there is leader, leadership through violence, through domination, um, and sexually speaking, that it, it sets up a rape culture scenario. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, there's a really great quote uh, in the middle of episode five where he says he's talking about, you know, well, in one hand, uh, Mark says, you know, some, he's very impassioned about like if somebody hurts a woman, I'm going to go Old Testament on, you know, he, he likes the bravado of saying he's going to, you know, fight guys that are hurting women. But at the same time, like he says, you, the quote is you can't glorify violence and condemn it at the same time. And like out of one side of his mouth, he's saying all of these this really violent rhetoric. But at the same time, he's also saying, don't you dare be violent. Like, And, and so what is what is happening is it's a very much like do as I say, not as I do. Like I'm allowed to to be like this because I can't help it. I, it's righteous anger. But also you should, you know, not not do this. And, and there, there's a lot of kind of, like you said, like this very violent culture. And we see that with Mark himself, like the way he treated people was very, you know, verbally abusive, ver- verbally violent. Mm-hmm. Oh, I I just I was going to say that I, I think that, you know, we're talking about the the sexual stance at Mars Hill as a sort of progression or exaggeration or hyperbolic purity culture. And and in some ways, I, and I think that that's true. Um, and I, I actually think that their approach to women's roles um, is also that kind of hyperbolic complementarianism. You know, where it takes complementarianism, which is, you know, headship of man and all of those pieces and, and exaggerates it into, um, you know, women aren't allowed to work. If your wife is working, you're failing as a man. You can't be in leadership at the church. Um, and he removed men from leadership in the church if he found out their wives were working. And then that, you know, women should be uh, at home having as many babies as they can, because that's actually how we're going to take back, you know, Seattle <laughs> for for God mm-hmm. is by by populating it with people who are indoctrinated in the way that we are. So both of those, I think, are kind of, you know, hyperbolic versions of these two doctrines, but or beliefs. And but I think that um, at their root, at their core, you know, those 
that that possibility is there in those doctrines, you know, at their even at their soft yeah. level. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, I, I think that particularly with complementarianism, like the, the thing that's there is is the lack of self-determination for women, you know, that a woman doesn't actually get to determine. Really, neither does a man in complementarianism. Both are predetermined. And so self-definition, mm-hmm. self-determination um, is not actually possible because you've already been told, you know, who you are, what you can do, what your roles are, what your possibilities are. And um, to me, that is that is uh, um, it's not different than complementarianism that is soft because the self-determination piece is the piece that's missing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree with that. I'm not a complementarian. So I'm like, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me. And complementarians would definitely disagree with me on this. But I see a lot of like we're trying to make separate but equal a thing again. Yeah. Um, like like it's the, yes, separate but equal is what you're saying. But we we decided a while back that that doesn't actually work well in real life. So like I, I agree with that. Right. Um, but if somebody else wants to disagree with that, that you're welcome to do that. <laughs> Yeah, I think one of the things that I really liked that Casper had said at one point um, was that uh, women, he rec- he kind of acknowledged that women were being reduced to a prop in this performance mm-hmm. that, um, that, he, that Driscoll was engaging in, you know, calling out the men, which in some ways, yes, men might need to be called out and asked to step up in some ways and um, – and, you know, it's a good thing, I guess, for pastors to challenge men in their commitment to the faith and things like that. But um, women weren't addressed at all in his tirade. And um, so I think that just kind of rejection of women to a prop in this experience that men were having. And he said mm-hmm. that it gave them no possibilities for what to do if uh, if they were being abused or if they were being mistreated. And so that I think that was good that he acknowledged that. Um and I thought it was interesting that um, some of the women felt initially relieved. Like one of the women talked about, like, it was a relief because I did want my husband to kind of step up or whatever. But then she she also realized that that was erasing her, her dignity and her choices. And, um, you know, and, and I, I kind of resonated with that in a sense, because I was like, yeah, I could see where, um, like, I know that having a choice is hard, like having a choice between staying Mm -hmm. home, like, you know, this between staying home and working, it's hard to make that call, because you always feel like you're making the wrong choice. Like, if you work, you feel like you're not being a good enough mom, if you're staying home with your kids, you feel like you're not, you know, using all of your gifts. And like, Mm -hmm. and it's because of these mixed messages that we're getting. Um, So like being told what to do could potentially make it easier. But then there's the the regret of, you know, that women feel and the, um, I, one way that I described it to my husband, um, because he was always very careful, <laughs> um, in our, you know, complementarian, like, church. First of all, the only, one of the only things we ever, like, argued about in our marriage was issues around this, you know, like, we're just trying to wrestle with what all mm-hmm. of that means in practice and both the church and in the home. And I kept describing it to him and I was like, I don't know, you know, like I'm an intellectual and I am a scholar and I don't know how to describe this except for that makes me feel small. That's <laughs> how I would describe it. Um, you know, like if, if I, you know, the idea that I can't be an elder or um, preach or, 
you know, the whole headship in the home. I was like, it just makes me feel small. And like, so that's so much what I was hearing in these women's stories. Um, and like, you know, Adam would always, if we had a, a big cert, certain texts were coming up that he knew he was going to have to preach on because he, t- he would teach through books of the Bible, he would have like a listening session where he would invite women from the church to come and, t- and explain their perspective on it and like what their questions were about the text. And anytime he would preach on sexuality or gender or marriage, um, he would always let me review his notes and make suggestions. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I really appreciated how Cosper handled that and that he recognized that. Um, and I really resonated with some of what the women were sharing about how like in the moment it felt like they were being, like they were being, um, cared for by the community and by the pastor. Mm-hmm. But then like the end result of it was just the opposite. Yeah, and that is exactly what my next question was going to be, is how did this impact women? We talked a little bit about this, obviously, but, um, you know, the, the podcast covers a lot of different ways that it's, it, that it impacted the women, not just at Mars Hill, but like I said before, like this permeated the, you know, Christian culture in America for years. Like he was one of the first to put MP3s of his sermons online. And so, you know, it was dispersed, um, to churches all over the planet, um, in a way that, that had not been as readily available until that point. So it, you know, it was a very specific thing at that culture, but it also, you know, affected me in Alabama or in Chicago or whatever, like this idea of the role of women, this kind of hyper um, hard complementarianism and and the role of men, like because that's the other question is, well, how did it impact men? Like it wasn't just something that hurt women like it, it hurt everybody. So does anybody want to talk about a little bit like how how it impacted women and men specifically or just kind of in general? I think there's so much to say and every woman who was impacted would have her own story, you know, um, for sure. So I, I, yeah. And so we can generalize, I think. Um, but I think, you know, part of what Kim, part of what you were saying is that just that feeling of being small. And then that goes back to what you were saying, Aaliyah, is like that the like separate but equal thing saying that, you know, we're alike in value. We're all in Im- the image of God. And yet we have different roles and those roles are actually hierarchical in terms of like um, decision making. Right. Um, and that in the church, then what happens is regardless of how you want to talk about value or even the image of God, you know, one, the, the male gender is the one that has the decision-making power and so inevitably has more value and more power. Um, and there isn't a way to do separate but equal when that's the case. Like, it's it's just not not real. So, mm-hmm. you know, Kim, as you were saying, like, there's that sense of when somebody tells you this is how it's supposed to be done, right? There's that sense of, um, okay, relief. I don't have to actually make that decision. But But that inevitably cuts you off from your internal decision making, you know what I mean? I mean, that's, that's the, that is the thing. But, and, and so, yes, it, I think there's a certain amount of like, oh, if somebody would just tell us, we could just, then we, this would just all be easy and we could just do it. But the, the sacrifice of that is that you've lost touch with what's internal and you've lost the ability to 
um, check in with yourself and figure out what you want and figure out how to go this direction or how to go that direction, which of course is never easy, but it is maturity. It is what maturity looks like is to be able Mm -hmm. to assess what's happening inside of me in relation to the things outside of me and, and make those decisions not selfishly, but with self-direction. And I think that part of what, you know, I grew up in a complementarian church. My dad is a pastor and, and there still aren't women deacons in that church. I preach now relatively regularly. I have led an organization that worked with female clergy. It's a thing I feel deeply and strongly about that women, um, representation, women's represent, like, Representing women in the pulpit and in leadership is part of how we actually express what the full what the full image of God is. If we're not doing that, we default to a male God and we just forget that that we really are in the image of God. You know, um, so sorry, that was a, t- a tangent. Um, but I think even if I just think about my own life, the impact on my own life is for sure that, you know, I went to Bible college um at a complementarian college and, you know, test did the spiritual giftedness test was gifted as a pastor was told, Oh, great. You women who are gifted as pastors. So great that you're, you have that gift and here's where you can use it. Not in leadership, not in the pulpit, but you know, with children and women's groups and, you mm-hmm. know, um, and, and it absolutely has altered the direction of my life. Um, and, and when I think about, and then I, I married under complementarian, you know, assumptions um, and, Neither my former spouse or I were like our dynamic and we worked really hard at it. We tried for the whole to set up the leadership and submissive thing <laughs> and it just it wasn't our personalities. It would have gone a lot better if we were self-determining and saying, mm-hmm. hey, who are you and what is it that you want to be and do in the world? And who are you and what is it that you want to do and be in the world? We probably maybe could have worked together to get to a point of like both having some sense of fulfillment. But we spent the first decade of our marriage trying to align with this impossible standard, which then never quite resolved, <laughs> you know, what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So 15 years in, we're like, Hey, we, we grew up together in ways that were hurtful and that's not working. Despite the fact that we're both very kind people, we rarely fought, we treated each other quite well. So anyway, all of that to say in terms of impact, I think it's deep and wide. And I think that, you know, I, I still know, um, my day-to-day life is deeply impacted by the way I was raised, by the things I was told I could do and couldn't do. I'm still learning how to make my decisions and take responsibility for my decisions, in a, you know, um, and, and I think that that's uh, in large part because I was taught that that wasn't up to me, that I was in reference all the time referential to another being and that I was supposed to be thinking all the time about what the male wanted and what my relationship to the male was. Man, thank you so much for sharing all that. That is, I resonate with that so deeply. I was raised the same way and our marriage started off the same way too. And it was very difficult because we don't fit into that mold either. And it was a, a lot of struggle before we realized like, we can't do this. Like this whole, like he has to be the decision maker dominant one. And I have to like that. That's just not us. And, um, once we release that, like you said, yeah, like things really do change when you just are allowed to be self-determinant. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I really appreciate that. And um, I think that self-determination, sorry, I'm saying so many no, words, go ahead, but go it's ahead. actually vital to intimacy. Like you can't yes. actually have intimacy if yes. you're not self-determining. And so for marriage, that's a, a deeply 
intimacy is uh, central. <laughs> and if you can't have it because you're both performing a role rather than being real with, with who, what's there for you and what's happening, uh, it's a it's a really poor foundation for like I'm getting chills right now. Like this is a whole sermon. This is fantastic. <laughs> like, you're so right. You're so right. Kim, did you want to add to this? Yeah, I just I, I think it's important um, what you kind of touched on there that it doesn't just impact the women, I think, negatively. It also really impacts the men negatively as well. They talked about kind of saddling the men with this unbearable burden of being um, responsible solely for the spiritual well-being of the people in their house. Um, and then I just think it's interesting, too, that, like, it was this weird, like, he was calling the guys out for objectifying women and for pornography and masturbation. Like, he called them out on that, but then turned around and sanctioned the objectification of their wives. Um, and, you know, thereby like like it was okay it's not okay to objectify like random women but it's okay to objectify your wife um and mm -hmm. you know really taking away the women's like what you were just describing carla like taking away women's agency when it comes to intimacy and when it comes to their gifts you know they weren't able to to use their gifts whether it was in the church or in the world um yeah, so it's just taking away their agency, taking away their humanity. Um, but it was damaging, I think, to the men and to the women. Um, and like one one of the pastors actually goes so far as to say it perpetuated a rape culture. Um, and and one of them shared his experience of like rage, you know, like where he, you know, was like threw something at a car, um, just kind of being in this context that sanctioned anger and rage and righteous anger or it wasn't even righteous anger it was just yeah that and um the kind of militant um masculinity that was encouraged so i think it was really damaging both to men and women and and those types of experiences are hard to unlearn you know those kinds of teachings are hard to unlearn and mm -hmm. and um heal from yeah and i think he modeled in addition to that, because I think you're absolutely right, he really used that to model for the men um, uh, narcissistic tendencies because I, they didn't touch on this, I think, enough in the podcast that like the idea of being verbally abusive, um, being difficult to like everybody had to walk on eggshells around him, but then him turning around and doing what they call love bombing where he would buy groceries for somebody or he would give somebody money for a, a wedding ring or he would pay for bills for a single mom so that then he could say, well, look at all these things that I do. How could you possibly say that I'm unkind or I'm abusive? Like I'm that's classic abusive narcissistic tendencies. Right. And I don't think that they did a very good job pulling this out in the inner in the, the podcast because they tried to make it a both sides issue like well he did this but he also did this and and really it needs to be that's on purpose like those two things are not separate parts of him that like oh he's struggling with one or the other like this is what abusers do they abuse and then they try to make up for it oh i love you baby i would never like you know let's i'm gonna buy you a new dress i'm gonna buy, look that's that's the model that he set for these men and so like then then you have several of the throughout the podcast, several of these men talking about how they saw themselves changing or they saw, saw their friends changing and starting to emulate this very toxic masculinity that was um, all bravado, all, you know, arrogance, but but sanctified. 
right? This, this sanctified toxic masculinity. This is the way that Jesus would be if he were here. So it's okay. And, and then on top of the damage that's being done to the women through the abuse, through the, um, belittling the objectification all that you also have these men who are looking to him for um some kind of identity you know who am i i'm this is you know end of the 90s beginning of the aughts so we've got this kind of disaffected you know youth coming up that are you know they're trying to figure out like where do we fit what's our place and he's saying oh i have a place for you it's at the top of the pile you are you know the man you're supposed to be all these things and here's how you do it watch and learn and and over these years, this is going to get into what we'll talk about in a minute. The legacy of Mark Hill is all of these men who spent a decade or more modeling themselves after this toxic narcissistic leader who are still out there today. <laughs> you know, like he's doing his thing in Arizona. We talk about that, too. But but this is, you know, this was damaging in a lot of ways that I don't even think the podcast hit on because it's still going on. There are little Driscoll's everywhere that still I mean, use some of his same phrasings and think that his stuff is great and funny and, and all that. And and it's it's damaging in a lot of ways that are kind of um, latent. They're not as obvious as the the people who were hurt. And and by all means, I want to emphasize the people who were abused and hurt and, and tossed aside and all of that. I just think there's so much more to it. The damage is so much more extensive than sometimes we see because a lot of times, oh, it's a women's issue gets pushed to the side. And, and it's, it is a humanity issue. It is a Christian culture issue, which is why I think it's so important to talk about. I appreciate that so much. And I, I feel like, um, you know, part of, part of my issue with the podcast as a whole, or part of what I've thought about it, um, is that it tries to kind of say Mars Hills is, Mars Hill was a one-off, that it was like, oh my goodness, this was yes. such an extreme version of these things. And part of what I'm hearing in what you're saying is that, um, there, there's this narcissism that is Mark Driscoll, right? That has kind of trickled down into all these other men. But what I think is also true is that actually in the doctrine of complementarianism, it sets up conditions for narcissism. It's like, it's like masculinity is the center. You know what I'm saying? So if narcissism is a, is a constant self-centering, a constant, um, like sense of my story is the only one that matters. And I actually get to control the narrative by doing exactly what you said, being abusive and then being nice. And then I get to tell what that means. And the other person actually doesn't get to have that mm-hmm. an experience or a say, but that sense of being, being the center, being the narrator, being the actor upon is narcissism <laughs> to a large degree. And that yeah. is actually how complementarianism in my view talks about masculinity. So, so masculinity is set up as narcissism and, and it, it, it is given permission to have that view of the world and of the people around it, that I am the center. And and even the way that complementarianism and purity culture came up together, because they did, they renewed, like, you know, early 80s and 90s was, you know, uh, mm-hmm. complementarianism got going with the Danvers statement in the early 80s and, you know, the um, uh, purity statements, whatever those were called, <laughs> I'm forgetting now, you know, that all happened about the same time. And so I feel like there's a, this sort of segment of us who grew up in that time that have this really unique experience of, of Christianity, of evangelicalism, because these two doctrines were so central. And so even the way that I should call them beliefs, I don't even know that they're doctrines, but these two ideas were so central. But even the way that purity culture functioned 
in that it centered or circled around male sexuality, that what we were trying to solve for was male sexuality and women were responsible to it. We never talked about the idea that women might have desires or could have pleasure. We never talked about the fact that the clitoris has more nerve endings than the, you know what I mean? Like we never talked about that stuff. It just wasn't part of the, uh, you know, the conversation. Female sexuality was not the point. I'm, I'm again, lots of words about the idea that these doctrines are making masculinity central in a way that is narcissism, you know, and I think that that's my even my experience in the post evangelical church with people, you know, who are on this podcast who went a very different direction in a lot of ways than Mark Driscoll, this piece that is that my story is central, I'm the narrator, I'm the person that gets to say what your experience is continues even as doctrines change and i think that that's because this thing gets so embedded in the body of men of women that we forget that it's separate from us and we just act out of it um yeah yeah i mean that and that actually is a really good place to talk about the women who did try to speak out and how their stories were controlled because um i don't know if y'all heard but stephanie drury was very vocal um, at the time that Mars Hill was happening, when all this stuff was happening. She was um, the author of the Stuff Christians Like. Um, I don't remember. It wasn't on Twitter because Twitter wasn't a thing back then. But it was like a it was like a blog, and um, she spoke out pretty vocally about Mars Hill. She went uh, once or twice, and she was in the area. She was local in Seattle area, and so she was really involved in kind of this. Um, backlash against what Driscoll was doing, and she was invited on the Mars Hill podcast and then disinvited because she posted some stuff about uh, some criticism about the podcast on, I think, Twitter. Um, she talks about it on several podcasts. She's She's been pretty vocal about it. I listened to her interview on um, – what was the name of it? Um, uh, Veterans of Culture Wars was the the episode with her on it, but she's been on a bunch of different podcasts. But I thought it was really interesting because it's exactly what you're talking about, about controlling the narrative, about even just the fact of who they let on to talk about this on the Mars Hill podcast is a way of controlling this narrative, of saying who gets to be a voice that mm-hmm. speaks for or against. Um, and, of course, Rachel Held Evans was very um, vocal against Mark Driscoll from an early – that was kind of – one of the things, from my understanding, that kind of kickstarted her public platform um, was was some of her pushback on her blog about um, Mark Driscoll and some other things too. But um, and she's obviously not with us anymore. And, and they do talk about her somewhat on the the podcast. Yeah, but talk with Sarah Bessie, who was you know yes. they started evolving faith together and um, right. that kind of thing. Yeah, right. But there were women speaking out about this at the time, mm-hmm. um, and doing their best to raise awareness of this while a lot of people with much bigger platforms looking at you, John Piper said very little against this and, and didn't listen to them and didn't take seriously these concerns and these things that were being raised. Um, so I, I just think it's interesting to contrast these women because it was primarily women and some women in Mars Hill too. Um, and Jessica Johnson, who wrote that book that they talk about in the the podcast, biblical porn was specifically about Driscoll and his like sex obsession and everything um, was another voice that was, that was speaking out at the time. And like all of these women are, are raising these alarms and yet all of these men in power, because these women obviously can't be in power in this complementarian universe. The men in power are, are saying nothing or saying very little or, you know, maybe hemming and hawing over, oh, I wish he wouldn't be so crude. But 
as the, as, or um, actually endorsing him and using, yes. you know, like kind yes. of writing his coattails because right. he was kind of this sensation, um, exactly. of the kind of Christian industrial complex. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so did y'all have anything else about like the women who were speaking out? Like I know Julie Royce is still speaking out today. She's been the one that kind of uncovered his current church situation in Arizona and has spoken to some people who got out of that and about kind of that, that whole thing. Um, but it really is interesting to see that that there are some men speaking out against, I mean, now everybody's piling on, but I meant, you know, for a while, but it was, it was really primarily these women, but because they were in this complementarian universe, they weren't given a lot of platform to, to really be heard. Yeah. I mean, I think that's another risk of that scenario, right? Um, so, and I think even on the podcast, they they do interview some women for sure. Um, I think that the other thing that's worth saying is that um, there aren't very many people of color that are talked to about this. And this feels like a, mm-hmm. a very uh, white evangelical church conversation, um, which, you know, is is <laughs> it is. Um, so even, you know, the white conservative evangelical church and then the white progressive evangelical church, which is. Um, made its moves it, it just is worth saying that that's that that's i think it's it's being. white and it's like upper or upper mm-hmm. middle class yeah. because like the whole thing of the roles of women like that's that's a luxury you know to be able to not work mm-hmm. um so Absolutely. i think you know it's that was the the issue of privilege um wasn't even addressed yeah, that's a really good point mm-hmm. yeah Mm-hmm. So we've been talking around this idea of the podcast itself, um, but but let, let, I want to hear your thoughts on the way that the podcast specifically handled like the issues with the women. What what did y'all think about the way that Christianity Today, Mike Cosper, and them? How did they do? I mean, I just I go back to. Um, <laughs> uh, I I think. It, Christianity Today shares a lot of assumptions, uh, or at least the based base doctrines with Mars Hill, um, even if they were exaggerated exaggerated at Mars Hill. So I think that there's kind of a false um, distinction that's happening again mm-hmm. with with the Christianity Today podcast trying to say that's a one off of this, rather than that is an extension of what we believe. That is part of what we believe. That is possible within the doctrines and contexts <laughs> that we believe. Yeah. Um, So and I think that, you know, it it was interesting because they had uh, Joshua Harris on um, and I have. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Josh. Yeah. I'm going to just keep stammering unless I just try to get past it. But I have lots of thoughts there. I've written a piece on Joshua Harris that then he commented on. Um, We were both on the same podcast at separate times talking about things. I am not (laughs) a name in the way that Joshua Harris is, but it is kind of funny um, that, you know, we're just constantly giving voice to these people. And Joshua Harris started speaking mm-hmm. about this kind of stuff when he was in his early 20s. People who should have known better amplified his voice because it was male um, and because it was saying exactly what they wanted it to say. Yep. Um, so anyway, all these things about, you know, Christian celebrity um, that also goes back to the narcissism point, I think. But so I so but at the very final episode they interviewed him and he finally did a thing that I was hoping somebody the whole time would do, which was to say, you do know if these doctrines you believe are real, this level of violence and domination 
is kind of called for. If you really believe that, like, the structure of the home is going to call down God's wrath upon us if we don't do it right, and if you really believe that people are going to go to hell unless we browbeat them with the gospel, then then this kind of, like, domination and violence mm-hmm. are really what we should be doing. We should, in this, in, in our temporal time, we should be doing this so that people get saved. And Joshua Harris, like, finally kind of tried to ho- call out Mark Hosper on this reality, and he dodged, you know. Um, and, and, and Joshua Harris put it down. He didn't follow it. He didn't follow that train of thought. But it was, like, the one time in the whole podcast that I thought, wait a minute, somebody's trying to say the thing. <laughs> Yeah, I I agree with that. Like, I call it spiritual Machiavellianism, like this idea that the ends justify the means and that as long as people are getting saved, it doesn't matter what else is happening. As long as we're checking these boxes of, you know, male headship or whatever, as long as we don't let women preach or whatever their standard is, then, well, if he wants to tell women they have to do this, that or the other, then I guess that's fine. Like this idea of. What, as long as these few things are checked, nothing else matters, is the antithesis of the gospel. Like the whole point of the gospel is that it's it's about the process, not the product. If it were just about the product, then why don't we just get instantly taken to heaven as soon as we get saved? Like there's no point in being on earth. Like as it is in heaven on earth means that we have to care about the way we go about things. And we can't just say, well, it was worth it. And he makes a point at one point where he says – it's not, is it worth the fruit? It's, it's, is it worth the damage? And, and I was really glad that he said that because I felt like early on in the podcast, the first couple of episodes until we got to this episode five about the women specifically, he tried to do this both sides thing. He tried to do, well, but look at all of these great experiences that people had and then kind of mumbled. And then there was some abuse there, you know, like, I mean, he didn't really, but that it was that kind of feeling of this, like, but you've got to look at all the good that came out of it. And I hear that so often in churches that that deal with abuse or that deal with, you know, some kind of um, big problem. They're split or whatever. This Well, but but people were coming to the Lord. But what Lord were they coming to if it's one that uh, that abuses and indoctrinates this kind of stuff? I really, you know, when it comes to, you know, like, look at the good and look at the bad, um, you know, there is the idea of journalism. Like, that's what they tried. They were presenting sure. this as, as, as journalism. Um, so I appreciated that. But more than that, it was that I think it helps us to reflect on, you know, just because this teacher is preaching the gospel or is, a, you know, using good, strong exegesis and whatnot, that's great. But you also have to look for the fruit of the spirit. You know, if like they're, yeah. if they are not like somebody in one of the episodes actually said that, um, yeah, Sarah I Bessie think it was Sarah Bethy. Yeah. She five. said, yeah. Does, yeah does, if it doesn't matter what they say, if they don't embody the fruits of the spirit. Um, and so I think, I think that that was good because there were times when he would pull out, you know, Cosper would pull out quotes from sermons where, you know, in Driscoll's voice. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's a, that's true. What he just said is true. But then he would follow it up with how it was enacted in the church. And you're like, okay, that's not true. Like, that's not right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I think I appreciated that, um, you know, because I think that's, that's what we need to be getting out of this. And like, you know, there were blog posts and things written. Um, Liam Thatcher wrote the, the essay unintended consequences of failure porn and really asking the question of 
should we be, you know, should we be listening to this? Like, it, are we just getting kicks out of seeing this person and this, this whole system implode and like the schadenfreude of it? Um, but he, you know, he, he points out that I think it's important we listen to this podcast, podcast and the lessons it has to teach us. Um, but as I said before, reflecting on Jesus's words from Luke 8, we need to be careful how we listen, because even if the content creators have put this project together carefully and prayerfully, there is a responsibility for the hearers to receive it and respond to it well. And he puts a quote from John Tyson, a tweet. There is a fine line between cautionary tales and failure porn, and it's mainly in your own heart. You must be humble, not gloat in all the fall in the fall of others and realize that each of us is also capable of these types of things. Um, and I, you know, as far as Christianity today being the ones to do this, I pr- particularly really appreciated it coming from a complementarian um, setting because I need people like Amy Bird and people like Mark Cosford to be having these internal reflections and discussions mm-hmm. um, because that's, that's what I'm wrestling in in my own head. And I feel like we need to be, to be recognizing this. And uh, Michael Bird responded to Thatcher's piece with a list of things um, of why he, you know, he was kind of contemplating his own experience of listening to it and whether or not it was unhealthy. And he said that we need to hear the story because this is what happens when narcissism comes to church. This is what happens when misogyny gets baptized at the pulpit. This is what happens when platforms matter more than people. This is what happens when Christianity imbibes the worst of consumerist and celebrity religious culture. This is what happens when your church leaders are nothing more than sycophants to a narcissist, power hungry and fame seeking frat boy. This is why character matters and why theological education is not an optional extra. This is why mentoring is necessary for anyone in church leadership. And um, yeah, so just as far as the podcast goes, like I said, it was an important piece for me, you know, to help me process what I was going through in my own church context. Um, And um, I really appreciate that Christianity Today took the time to do it. And I'll also say that I was listening to this while I was going through this whole experience with my own church, but also... um, uh, doing a Bible study from Jackie Hill Perry in Jude. And so many of the quotes in Jude, I think, apply to this situation. So I do think it's a, a, a cautionary tale that we need to take into consideration. But in verse four, it says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord. And in verse 13, it says, these are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness Darkness has been reserved forever. And in 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And like the whole time I'm doing this Bible study, I'm like thinking of this podcast and the experience at, of with Mark Driscoll. Um, and it's really comes down to a complementarian setting where you're taking Ephesians 5.22 without taking Ephesians 525. It's like wives submit to your own husbands for the husband is the head of the wife, but not going to the next 
part, which is love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, so, yeah, and not taking Ephesians 5.21, everyone should yeah. submit to each other in love. Right. Yeah. So, like, the whole, you know, showing both sides, I think that was important because we all need to be checking ourselves in our church environment and our leaders and saying, well, you might, you might have fruit. You might be exegeting the Bible and checking these boxes, but are you exhibiting fruits of the Spirit and enacting that? in every aspect of your life and in every aspect of the church. Um, so I, I, it, I think it was good in that it showed here's the good things he did. And like you said, I didn't make that connection with it being classic abusive behavior <laughs> um, to do the, the good things that he was doing. So I did, but I think that that was a good connection to make as well. I appreciate that, Kim. I appreciate the, you know, feeling like a sense of, you know, this coming from um, within from within the doctrine as a, as a question, as a check on what it is. Um, I appreciate the the value and the importance of that. I, I, yeah, I, I think I, I'm always curious about like, um, just how to keep, how to, cause I, I definitely respect people who hold this and know people who hold it in such good faith with such good, um, so much thought and intent and it's not a default, um, space and so um and sometimes i think in my being there's been so much hurt by it that i just think but can't but can can you see or or does it do you feel that sense of like but this is always a potential within this you know that that this is always possible um so i get i'm i'm i don't know that i have a question there other than to say thank you for talking about that scenario how for you um, it felt like, oh, within this idea structure, we are trying to look critically at this and find the places where it gets to a point of abuse. Um, yeah. Yeah, for and sure. And I think it's important also because there are particularly men within that structure are not going to listen to voices outside of that mm-hmm. community. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if voices inside the community aren't asking those questions and bringing up those conversations, then they're not going to be had or, you know, it's, and, and that's not, that's not okay. They should be willing to engage with voices outside the community, but I just know that like, I'm more likely to get people to read things that were produced within the context. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. This is what I keep saying. saying. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah, so I'm just excited that people are, are listening and engaging with this. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, he's saying that, like, I feel like Christians would not have listened to this in the numbers that they did if it weren't done by Christianity Today, right? Like, so that's important because it needs to reach the right audience. And and, and that if, it, if it's only listened to by outsiders, then it really is just failure porn. Um, so it needs to be listened to by people who will take it and, and make steps to prevent it from happening again. But on the other hand, I, I worry about the lack of objectivity um, that we could have had if we had somebody who wasn't so deeply involved at the time and still very heavily invested in portraying this in a very specific light. So I I do see both sides, but I do appreciate that. Like, I don't think it would have mattered as much if it hadn't come from Christianity today. Or or even if there had been more, more like self-reflection or like, do you know what I mean? Like, it it is still within the context. Again, I feel like it's being, it's being talked about as if it's like this extreme or this one-off rather than like um, 
part of the continuum of this belief system. I, I agree with that. Um, and so, so I think a little more like self-reflection on, on that would have been useful for, I would have enjoyed hearing that. <laughs> and, you know, I think, I know for me, I have gone, like, I don't, I'm, I would, I don't really believe in atonement theory in the way that we've been talking about it. I don't really believe in, um, I'm, I'm a universalist and not sure I entirely, you know, so there are a lot of pieces here that are really different for me. And when I'm talking about even what Joshua Harris was saying, like I, I'm saying all the way down at those writ doctrines of evangelicalism, there, there is potential for violence. And, and we rarely, we rarely reflect on those. And I know them, they're my, like <laughs> I, somebody said, I think, I think in Bible, you know, like it's, it's, it's what I grew up on. I, I, so I know them well, and I have made choices about what to what I believe mm-hmm. about what's in the Bible and and the different things that I choose to emphasize that are in the Bible um, that have turned a lot of those things. And so for me, so um, I have I have a lot of thoughts on on the violence that is innate in a lot of our our Christian doctrines. Um, but and I, I guess I would have just really liked to hear uh, some of some self-reflection on the fact that this is that this is there, even in its softest form or even in its most well-intentioned form. This is a potential. I definitely get that. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. Um, let's move on to our passing on because we're right at our time. Um, Carla, why don't you go ahead and give us your recommendation for further uh, reading and information? Sure. So this is actually a recommendation that came from the podcast, um, and I have not read it yet, though I've purchased it. It's called When Narcissism Comes to Church, and they interviewed its author, Chuck DeGroat, uh, a couple of times, and I thought what he was saying was really interesting. So it's been on my, you know, to-read side table <laughs> for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And so I'm suggesting it to our readers and or to our listeners and to myself. Yeah, that's on my list, too. Uh, Kim, what about you? Uh, my recommendation is Recovering from Biblical Manhood and wo- Womanhood, How the Church Needs to Rediscover Her Purpose by Amy Bird. Um, and it is one that is circulating in the more complementarian, um, which, I, you know, again, I think is a good thing that within it that they're asking these questions and um, having these conversations. And I love that she uses the metaphor of the yellow wallpaper from the short story by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, um, which if you haven't, if you don't know that short story, it's the story told through a series of diary entries from a woman who is being treated by her physician husband for what he diagnoses is temporary nervous depression. His treatment is for her to stay in an old nursery in an old mansion and refrain from working and writing. And she begins to believe there's a woman trapped behind the pattern of the yellow wallpaper. And so in the book, um, Amy Bird is kind of trying to peel back the yellow wallpaper of biblical manhood and womanhood. Um, and she really looks at the what she calls the gynocentric interruptions in the Bible to challenge some of the normalized conceptions of biblical manhood and womanhood in complementarian settings. So that is what I would recommend. Yeah, that's a great book. I've read it. And it is a good one for making the distinction while still in complementarianism of some of these um, extreme uh, theologies. Um, so I'm going to recommend two because I can never pick just one. Um, the first is A Church Called Tove by Laura Beringer and Scott McKnight. Um, it is a great, it's small, um, but it is a great book about how to deal well with um, scandals and controversies that come up in the church. They were a part of Willow Creek, and um, so a lot of it focuses on kind of their experience with 
um, everything that went down there, but he, you know, extrapolates it to how should churches deal with situations where um, there is some kind of abuse or there's some kind of um, problem that comes up on a, a big uh, leadership level, and how do we set up a church so we don't have those? How do we set up accountability, um, the things that, that kind of went by the wayside at Mars Hill that allowed this um, kind of culture to, to develop. And the other one is, and it's been recommended before, but Jesus and John Wayne by Christian Cobes Dumay. Um, Victoria did a, an interview with her for a podcast a while back. Um, but this book is absolutely amazing. And Mark Driscoll features prominently in, uh, at least one or two chapters. Um, but she kind of talks about the history of, um, doctrines of masculinity in modern evangelicalism from like the seventies through today and kind of traces this thread. And when you were talking about um, how the, the doctrines of purity culture and complementarianism kind of grew up together in the the nineties um, that she traces this thread all the way through. And she talks about the Mars Hill piece as part of this larger kind of um, quilt uh, that was going on throughout the seventies, eighties and nineties that um, really shaped the way that we see manhood and womanhood in evangelicalism today. So it's, it's definitely a must read. I, I really love it. So yeah, the church well, called Cove is on my list and, um, it's so and good. I, also Kristen, uh, Cove DeMay's like her, she was, her voice was prominent yes. in this podcast as well. Yes. And yes. I appreciated them bringing her perspective in. It was. Well, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out our show notes from this and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Kim and Carla, I'm Ilea Daner-Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss the Poisonwood Bible. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.